the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'll be looking at Sinn Féin's proposal to reintroduce mortgage interest relief to help some homeowners make ends meet amid the spike in rates over the past 12 months. You'll hear Brendan Burgess of AskAboutMoney.com explain why he's opposed to this idea. In the second half of the show, Umber Kennedy of the Irish Times will join me to explain the latest €2 billion spike in our corporation tax receipts. But first to mortgages and a Sinn Féin proposal to introduce mortgage interest relief for those with trackers and whose loans were sold to vulture funds. This is designed to help them offset the spike in their repayments as the European Central Bank has increased rates sharply over the past year. Under Sinn Féin's plan, the mortgage holders will get a tax credit equal to 30% of the increase in interest costs on their loan, up to a maximum of €1,500 a year. Brendan Burgess is a consumer advocate and the founder of AskAboutMoney.com, and he's firmly against this idea. He joins me in the studio now. Brendan, you're very welcome to the show. Tell me, why are you against this proposal from Sinn Féin? The problem is that mortgage interest relief, as proposed by Sinn Féin, is being given to people, generally speaking, who don't need it. How do you know that they don't need it? Well, most of the people who get it don't need it because they've identified tracker mortgage holders, for example. Now, the last tracker mortgage was given out in 2008, 15 years ago. So most of those people have paid down substantial amounts of capital off their loan. And so, for example, if somebody has a mortgage left now of €100,000 and they were on a tracker of ECB plus 1%, their interest bill is going to go up from €1,000 to €5,000. And Sinn Féin is saying, grand, we're going to give them 30% of the increase, mm. or €1,200. But if you're a first-time buyer that took out a mortgage of 300000 a year ago, and you fixed the rate at 5%, well, you'll be paying... €15,000 interest, and you'll be getting no help from Sinn Féin. Was 5% so, the going rate about a year ago for a fixed interest It depends mortgage? on the length of the term, but 4 or 5%, that's the, that's the sort of rate that you, you would have been paying. Uh, you, could be, you could get it cheaper for a shorter term, but it depends. My point is that if the rate, if you, if you fixed your mortgage, you're not going to get any help from this. So that's why I object to this proposal. And there are people who need it more. So... For example, because of the increase in rates of of interest and because of people's changing personal circumstances, there will be people in mortgage difficulties, a small percentage, a small number of people, but they're the people who need help. So if we have a limited supply of money, which we have, despite the the common perception that we've unlimited money, uh, it should be targeted to people who need it most. And I've long been an advocate that when somebody is in mortgage arrears and is struggling with their mortgage, the state should step in and help them with a mortgage interest supplement while they're in mortgage arrears. But I've gone further than that and I've said that this should not just be a social welfare payment, this should in effect be a loan which would be repayable. So that would be a much better use of money than than broadly just 
yeah. a blanket payment to everybody who's seen an increase in their interest rates over the last year. So. Now, you do say that we don't have a bottomless pit of money, but later in the show, I'm going to be talking to Umber Kennedy about the Surgeon Corporation tax receipts. And he was writing on Monday about how we have another $2 billion in corporation tax receipts, so they're going to exceed $26 billion this year. And the projected surplus for the next four years, if you like, is going to be 65 billion euro. Now, 65 billion euro also happens to equate to the same amount of money as we spent bailing out the banks post-2008. So actually, we do have a lot of money swilling around. And the government's under a lot of political pressure from Sinn Féin, which is riding high in the polls. We're going to have an election the next 18 months, two years, whatever the time frame will be. They're under a lot of pressure to spend that excess capital and to help people with their with their mortgages. And that's why it's very dangerous. I think that any, I mean, it's a separate issue, but any surplus like that should be used to paying down our very large national debt. We bailed out the depositors of the banks and that cost a lot of money and we have run up very high... Uh, we bailed out some bondholders as well. Some bondholders, but mainly it went to the depositors of the bank. I mean, if, if, the, if we did not, you know, people use the expression, we bailed out the banks. We bailed out the depositors in those banks. And if we had let the banks go then the depositors would have lost a lot of money. But anyway, the point is we need to get our national debt down. And But my, my, my point is that if you are spending money, spend it wisely. Give it to people who need it and don't give it to people who don't need it. The other issue which Sinn Féin has raised, and it's a very good point, is vulture funds, customers of vulture funds have suffered a lot. You know, if you had a mortgage with, say, permanent TSB and it was sold to Pepper, today you're paying probably about 7.5%. If you were still with PTSB, you'd be paying 4%. The solution to that is not to give the borrower some taxpayer's money to make the pain a little bit less. The solution to that is to bring in some form of control on what the vulture funds can charge when the mortgages were sold to the vulture funds, the central bank and the government assured all the borrowers that they would not suffer, that they would be treated exactly the same. Well, I think, I think what they said was that their, the rights that they had with the previous lender, whether it was permanent TSB or one of the banks that exited the market, and quite a few of them did, that those same rights applied with the new lender, uh, whatever fund it might happen to be. You've mentioned Correct. Pepper. But there are plenty yeah. of uh, yeah. funds who bought loans in the market. But that doesn't mean that uh, you weren't going to be subject to the vagaries of uh, rising interest rates. And the other thing is, presumably, I'm just playing devil's advocate here for the mm -hmm. funds, but presumably uh, most of those loans are non-performing. No, no, I don't think that's correct. Um, and and even if they're non-performing, so what? The The risk is assessed when people take out a mortgage and you are charged an interest rate, most people whose mortgages were sold, um, th th they were originally prime loans when they were taken out. They were given out at normal mortgage rates. In this country and indeed in most countries, the practice is not to say, uh, it, the practice is not to put up interest rates when a person goes into arrears. So I have no objection at all to a subprime lender giving money at a higher rate to people who are taking out a mortgage. But I do object 
to prime borrowers who subsequently suffer difficulties in their repayments being charged a higher rate. And that is effectively what is happening. But, you know, you're right in that they did stress the the uh, rights would not change. But I argued at the time and that, you know, the right of the bar, the lender to increase the interest rate didn't change either. And that is something, I, I think it's, manifestly unfair that if you took out a mortgage with PTSB and I took one out on the same day, your mortgage was sold, you're now being paying 7.5% and I'm paying only 4%. And I think that the central bank and the government should get involved and should say, no, you must charge the rate that the original bank is making available. So if permanent TSB is charging 5% today, well then that rate must be made available to a Pepper customer or a former customer of of PTSB. I think that's only fair. You know, I well, think it should it's, be said the Central Bank of Ireland doesn't want to have any role in setting interest rates for any cohort of borrowers. Well, the Central Bank has an appalling history when it comes to interest rates. When when the ECB rate was being cut, Irish banks started increasing the mortgage rates to a situation where Irish mortgage rates became the highest in the eurozone. And there wasn't a peep out of the central bank about that. They didn't say, oh, look, this is not a good idea that you're pushing up mortgage rates when the economic policy of the ECB is to bring down interest rates. Yet a couple of months ago, when the ECB started raising interest rates and the Irish banks did not raise their rates, which were already high, the governor, McClough, expressed concern that the banks were not implementing the economic policy of the ECB I mean, I, I was appalled by that statement. I mean, you, you can't say that they should be implementing the policy of the ECB only when rates are rising. They should have said it when the rates were falling and they didn't do that. Yeah, one of the reasons why the rates went up post the crash, of course, was because the banks had so many trackers on their books and they were loss-making, suddenly became um, loss-making in most cases. Yes, and now the trackers are very profitable yeah, for the banks. So it's, it is, a, it is you know, things change quite quickly. Yeah, just going back to the original point about those, uh, tr- the example you gave of somebody who's got a hundred grand left on their tracker and they'll go from an interest payment of about a, a grand a year to five grand a year. I mean, it's a substantial increase, isn't it? It's a substantial increase. Four grand a year. And the fact that you've been paying, you know, you haven't been paying that kind of uh, rate for the past 15 years, eating bread is soon forgotten. That's, that's washed away. So Yes, but don't forget, th- these people probably took out their mortgage uh, 15 years ago when they were, say, around 30. They're now 45. So they've advanced in their career. Generally speaking, obviously there's going to be exceptions, but generally speaking, these people have advanced in their career. They've paid 15 years of capital off their mortgage. They've paid much more capital than they were expecting to pay because the interest rate was lower. So uh, they're, they're generally speaking better off, certainly, and wealthier than people, they probably have four or five hundred grand's worth of equity in their home. And yet Sinn Féin wants to give them help, but there's no help at all for people who took out a mortgage a year ago, maybe a 300 grand mortgage who's on a much lower salary. I I would argue, you know, I, I don't like the idea of uh, just blanket payments to people, but if you want to introduce a blanket mortgage interest supplement without testing whether people need it or not. Give it to first-time buyers. Give it to people for the first three years because, as you know, I'm sure 
you know when you took out your first mortgage, the first three years were the ones where you were really struggling. And, you know, you, that's, that's where it takes the biggest proportion of your salary. You work very hard. You're doing up your house, etc. And that's the, if they want to give a tax relief on a blanket basis, give it to those people for about the first two or three years. I mean, the irony of all this is that the people, say, the tracker mortgage holders who are going to be, who it's proposed to give money to now, they actually got mortgage interest relief 15 years ago when they, there was a mortgage interest relief. I was going to say for, that, yeah. yeah. So they actually, they got it back then. They're getting it again now. And uh, yet the vast majority of mortgage holders uh, won't get anything because they're, um, you know, it, because they've fixed and they've been fixed for the last year or so. Yeah. So that mortgage relief ended in January 2021. But actually, mortgages after December 2012 didn't qualify for the relief. Yeah, it was I phased presume, out. It was, um, I presume that was a troika, uh, probably uh, uh, part of the deal with the troika at the time. We were in the middle of our, uh, you might recall, 11, 12 and 13 were our three troika years. So I, I presume that was one of the sort of tax breaks, etc. that was... I think it was, I'm not sure if it was a troika, it was just part of the overall, you know... Uh, but ironically, cut. that's when people needed it most because in 2012, the country was really struggling. We were on our knees. Yes, but they were getting tax relief and they had, I mean, people took out, the last tracker was issued in 2008. So probably probably between 2004 to 2008 was the period when most trackers were given out. So um, by 2012, people were really struggling. They were in deep negative, uh, um, negative equity and, and, and there was high levels of unemployment as well. So... Um, I mean, I didn't object too much to it for people in their first few years, but the idea of giving it to people who've had a mortgage for 15 years, particularly as you pointed out, they've paid almost 0% uh, for the last, what, I think it's 2006, did the interest rate drop down to 0%? So it's something like the last... Uh, yeah, well, the trackers came in all shapes and sizes now, as you know yourself. So some people, I know some people who are paying 2% or a little more for for a tracker, but the average is about one percent. Yeah. So sure. if you had a mortgage, like if you have a mortgage today of a hundred thousand euros on a tracker, a ECB plus one percent, you're paying five thousand euros a year interest. Like you're paying five thousand for your housing costs for the year. How much is the average renter in this country paying? Uh, you know, to to get an equivalent house, I presume it would be presumably. 15, 16, 20,000 a year. You're suggesting that the mortgage interest relief, if we're going to have it at all, should be focused on first-time buyers and maybe for the first three years of their loan. But in effect, those first-time buyers, a lot of them are going to be buying new homes. So doesn't that benefit effectively end up getting priced into the new home? I I have this sort of feeling that developers see that and they say, oh, okay, well, in terms of affordability, they have a few more quid in their pocket, so I'll add that on to the price I, of the house. I don't think so. I don't think um, the helping people with their interest payments, I mean, it would have a small indirect effect. But but look, I agree with you. A lot of the government, I don't like the government intervening in the housing market. I don't like the government giving people the help to buy scheme because that. We also them, have a shared equity scheme now. Yeah, I mean, just lo- I mean, I've lost track of the schemes that are there now, but I don't like those schemes. I think when you have a problem, you look and see what is the cause of the problem, 
and try and solve that problem. You don't, I think these shared equity schemes and help to buy schemes, I think they're actually giving people more money so they end up pushing up the price of houses. So people end up with bigger loans for the same house. So I I would like to see those schemes all scrapped, but I'd also like to see that on new houses scrapped. I mean, I'd like to see development levies for new homes scrapped. And you know, Why? I'd, I'd like to see the government... Uh, to getting out of it as much as possible, not to be sort of taxing on one hand and giving them grants on the other side. I just think that's a very poor way of doing things. Yeah. So, But of course, that narrows the tax base on, on the one side. And there's no guarantee that developers will pass on the saving to, to purchasers. There isn't a guarantee, but there is a market out there. And the market determines what the price of the houses will be. And that will be depending on the supply of finance and the cost of building. And, you know, so it's, I think overall, I think it would be, if if VAT was reduced, if VAT was eliminated, which I think it should be, I don't think it's VAT on new houses in the UK, for example. So if VAT was eliminated, it would have, you know, it could be a situation that the builders say, okay, we're going to charge the same price and we're just going to pocket the VAT. But if that happens in a normally functioning market, the effect of that would be that uh, it becomes more profitable to build houses and more houses would be built. So I think if, if you follow the logic of or follow the argument that um, eliminating VAT won't help, well, then you may as well put the VAT up to 50 percent. And then, the, you know, the house. The, yep. the, you know, so I, I don't buy that argument. I, I think you have to be careful about it and how you implement it at a time when there are very few houses being built. But um, you're also making the point that this puts people who have mortgages at uh, an advantage to those who are renting in the market. In a lot of cases, the people who are renting are paying more than um, people who buy a new home and who pay a mortgage. Uh, the renters get a tax credit of uh, €500 Euro each, whereas the benefit for the mortgage holders could be more. Yes, the proposal, the Sinn Féin proposal is a cap of €1,500. Euros. So I'm not really sure why you as the owner of a house should be getting 1,500 euros and I as a renter should be getting only 500 euros. So um, it doesn't seem to me to make sense to be giving people who are generally speaking better off. I mean, homeowners are generally speaking better off than renters and it doesn't seem to make sense to me to be giving homeowners more money than you give to renters. Now, mind you, the mortgage arrears numbers from the central bank show that the numbers are going up, presumably because of the cost of living crisis, people are really feeling the squeeze. So those people in that situation probably don't feel very lucky as homeowners. They're feeling very stressed, I would imagine. They are feeling stressed. And that is why I think that there should be a, a, a mortgage assistance payment, a bit like the housing assistance payments. If somebody would qualify for housing assistance payment if they were renters, well, then I see no reason why they shouldn't be given that if they're mortgage holders. I mean, if somebody has a mortgage and they're struggling with the mortgage, I think we should help them, particularly because the vast majority of people who are struggling are genuine, you know, genuinely paying what they can. And uh, I would be absolutely in favour of spending government money helping those people out. So, Brendan, if you were the Minister for Finance framing the budget coming up in probably early October, what would you do? Well, I would absolutely scrap any, I would re- reject any plans for a mortgage interest supplement. I mean, that would be just out the door. I wouldn't, just wouldn't countenance at all.
But there's a political reality to this, isn't it? It's a proposal from Sinn Féin, who are ahead uh, in the polls. We have an election coming up in the next year and a half, two years. The government is struggling in the polls, particularly Fine Gael. I would highlight the fact that this, you know, this proposal helps the better off and provides no help at all for the worse off. I, like, this is now to try and get this across politically. I'm not a politician, but if I were trying to explain this politically and get this across, I would point out that we're giving three times as much to people who own their own houses as we are giving to people who are renting. And I would say that we're giving money to people who've owned houses for 15 years and giving no help to to people who've only owned houses for the last year or so who could well be struggling with their mortgage. And most of all, what I would do, it wouldn't be part of the budget, I don't think. I would be uh, looking at ways to bring in legislation to limit what vulture funds can charge their customers. Is that possible? I think it is possible. I think there's a requirement under the Consumer Protection Code to treat customers fairly. And I think it could well be argued, and I've certainly heard legal argument, that it's an implied term. If you borrow money from a bank, it is implied that you will be getting the rates that that bank charges for the term of your mortgage. Now, I think it would have to be argued in the High Court or it would have to be argued in front of the Ombudsman. But I think it's well worth arguing. And I do think that the state whether that's the government or the central bank, should take action to protect the customers of vulture funds. Yeah, because the vulture funds, obviously, they fill the role. Let's let's be honest about it. A lot of banks scarpered from the Irish market post-2008, and if there hadn't have been funds there to buy those loans, a lot of people were in distress with those loans. Some of them weren't, but a lot of people were if there would have been chaos. I have argued uh, when a lot of people were arguing that vulture funds shouldn't be let into the country. I argued that if you do not allow repossession of houses houses where the mortgage is in deep arrears, well then don't complain if the loan is sold to a vulture fund. You can't say to people, you, uh, you can't say to the banks, you can't repossess a house and you can't sell on your loan because you'd leave all our banks as dud banks. But that doesn't mean that you don't have controls on the vulture funds, how they behave. I mean, the vulture funds got these mortgages fairly cheaply. Um, we, we know they got them at discounts. We don't know what those discounts were. And um, they can well afford to charge the rates. But in a sense, that's a separate point. I'm thinking of, from the borrower's point of view, the borrower set out to take out a loan from a mainstream bank at a particular rate or at the rates that those banks would be charged, they're now being charged a rate of about 3% more or maybe 4% more than they would be expecting to be paid. And I actually just think that's manifestly unfair. And I think that would probably stand up in court or before the ombudsman. Yeah. Mind you, by putting jacking up the rates to those kind of levels, um, I presume the vulture funds are making a calculation here that most of their customers can afford it because if they couldn't afford it, they'd end up in arrears and, you know, that would be a, a, a very big headache for the funds because it's very difficult to repossess a house in this country. It's a very time-consuming process and a very expensive process. Yeah, it's a very interesting calculation that the vulture funds do. Mm. I mean, most people are now in plenty of positive equity. So they are going to have a very strong motivation to pay their loan. So they will pay their mortgage and they will make huge sacrifices to pay their mortgage. And the other thing now, of course, is that many customers who could do 
switched from vulture funds to a, a mainstream lender to get a cheaper rate. But now, if they didn't switch and the interest rate's gone up and they've been pushed into arrears, they're stuck with that vulture fund. So they're now, you know, prisoners of these vulture funds. They, there's absolutely nothing they can do because they've been in arrears. No other lender will touch them. So the, the vulture funds know that they will get a very high return on their investment by pushing up the rates. Very few people, uh, you know, there, w- there will be a small percentage where they will repossess the house. But now the houses are in uh, positive equity. So it's um, to be a small number of cases where people haven't paid for years. I mean, you know, there are some people who have not paid their mortgage for 10 years. So it's completely irrelevant whether they're charged 1% or 10%. Doesn't I mean, they're not, pay- they're not paying anything anyway. So The final point is we should recognise, I mentioned that a lot of banks exited the Irish market after the crash and their loans were just um, sold on. But um, some of the mainstream banks sold loan portfolios as well. Uh, and they were kind of forced to do that by the regulator, weren't they? By the European Central Bank and the Central Bank of Ireland because they, want, they wanted the mainstream mm-hmm. banks to get their non-performing loan ratio down to about, I think it was 4 or 5%. It was in double digits um, at one stage. So that's why permanent TSB, for example, was was selling loans. Yeah, there were genuinely non-performing loans, like people who've paid nothing for years. And I fully supported the sale of those to vulture funds. I would have preferred if we'd had a mature discussion and allowed those homes to be repossessed. But, uh, you know, absent that, I I had no objection to those mortgages being sold. However, there were about 6,000 customers of permanent TSB and they had restructured their loans. PTSB did what they were asked to do by the central bank and by the government. They had been generous. They had given people split mortgages. They had done deals with people. They had extended the terms. And the borrowers had done what they had been told to do. They had engaged with the bank and they continued paying. So they were restructured mortgages. As far as permanent TSB were concerned, these were very profitable mortgages. They were getting paid. They may, they may have been paid uh, later than they would. They may have been uh, matured later than they expected. Or it may have been that there was a balance of fifty or 100,000 at the end of the term that hadn't been uh, provided for in terms of repayment. And the central bank and the ECB and the EBA said they are non-performing loans. They, uh, this is an artificial definition and permanent TSB were forced to sell 6,000 very profitable performing loans artificially classified as non-performing. It was an outrageous thing for the central bank to do and the central bank should have stopped that. And, uh, you know, and then later on we have the mad situation whereby permanent TSB is encouraged to buy loans from Ulster Bank I'm getting, getting confused between, yeah, they did buy the Ulster Bank loans. They bought the Ulster Bank loans. So, you know, they were forced to sell some profitable loans and then, they had, then they're encouraged to buy other loans. And, like, it's, it's really no joined-up thinking. No, you know, they're reading some book that tells them this is the definition of a non-performing loan. And it was an appalling way to treat permanent TSB and their customers. Yeah, that loan purchase from Ulster Bank, part of a wider 
transaction that took place. They also took over some branches and took some staff on board, and they took yeah. the corporate uh, business banking element too. And Ulster Bank was quite, uh, you know, a substantial player in the uh, corporate market here. So that's given PTSB a sort of a new leg to its business, I suppose. And but th- I mean, that was government policy to make yeah. permanent TSB a third, uh, a third pillar in the banking system, and yet. The central bank, stroke ECB, stroke EBA, actually took a substantial amount of their business away from them, forced them to sell it at a loss. Mm. Okay, well, listen, we know you're against this plan for mortgage relief, but, you know, there is a political reality here. Do you think the government will be forced to, to bend to this? I think when it is studied in detail and when the people realise uh, that uh, it's it's favours the rich rather than the poor. Uh, If I were the Minister for Finance and I was trying to work out the politics of this, I would bring in a mortgage interest supplement, but I'd bring it in for first-time buyers. Okay, Brendan Burgess, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, Umber Kennedy will join me to discuss the latest spike in our corporation tax receipts. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. On Monday, Owen Burke Kennedy wrote in the Irish Times that the government's forecasts for corporation taxes here are likely to be exceeded by €2 billion Euro based on latest data. This would take receipts to a new record of €26 billion Euro plus. Owen joins me on the phone now to explain the reasons behind the latest bulge in our tax receipts. Owen, thank you for joining us. Tell us why corporation tax receipts are running €2 billion Euro ahead of Department of Finance forecasts. Okay, well, it's worth maybe giving listeners just a little bit of context before I get into the latest instalment on our corporate tax story. I mean, between 2009 and 2014, corporate tax receipts here were remained in a kind of narrow range between 4 billion and 4.5 billion. They actually even averaged 4 billion. They've skyrocketed since then. And last year, receipts were 22 billion, a record 22 billion. And the Department of Finance now is forecasting 24 billion for this year. So, you know, it's it's just been an unbelievable source of revenue for the government. So if you want to know how the government is funding a near record 11 billion budget, uh, running a budget surplus and placing 6 billion in a rainy day fund, uh, look no further than corporation tax. And, you know, at the same time, other countries around Europe are kind of floundering financially in the wake of large outlays on COVID and a sharp hike in borrowing costs. So in many ways, we're being shielded uh, from these trends uh, by corporation tax. So the government, uh, as I said, the Department of Finance, as I said, is forecasting another record 24 billion haul. And that's like six times what we were getting um, only a few years ago. So we've noticed that... um, Someone uh, tipped me off that uh, basically, if you look at the CSO's latest industrial production figures, you'll see quite a sizable jump in manufacturing output in April, jumped by 70% in one month. Now, that's been linked to contract manufacturing, and in particular, Apple's contract manufacturing in China, which in simple parlance is they're making more iPhones. 
and that's based on global demand increasing. Now, the sales uh, and revenue they're going to get from these uh, presumably increased sales is going to wash through our tax system, and that's probably going to mean uh, an additional $2 billion in revenue, not solely from uh, Apple, but largely driven by Apple. And that has insiders predicting that the Department of Finance will undershoot again, this time by about $2 billion. So we could get another record haul of $26 billion this year. It's an extraordinary sum of money. And let's put it into context as well that we're talking about a surplus for the government over the next four years or so of €65 billion, euro, driven in large part by these windfall uh, corporation tax receipts. Is there any sense... Owen, given that we know that the tech sector last year took a real buffeting, thousands, thousands of people were laid off worldwide by all of the big tech firms. You have to imagine their profits are going to have been hit last year. So is there any sense that the corporation tax receipts are going to fall off a cliff in the next six to 12 months? Well, it's interesting. I feel like I've spent my entire journalistic career writing about the concentration risk, the potential volatility in corporation tax. And at the same time, the headline totals just seem to be going up and ticking up all the time. So yes, there was a global retrenchment in tech. And you'd imagine that has to, on some level, wash through our tax system. But remember, the concentration risk means that we're talking uh, two or three firms at the head of our corporate tax uh, kind of source. Who are those firms? Yeah, well, that's interesting. Um, IFAC, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, did a recent report in which normally we're we're talking about 10 firms providing 60% of corporation tax revenue, but they actually said that actually three firms were putting uh, 30% of revenue over the last five years. Now, we know at the top of that pile is Apple. We think the second uh, is probably Microsoft, and we're not sure who the third biggest corporation tax uh, player is here. It could be Intel, it could be Google, it could be Meta, it could be another pharmaceutical giant. We're just not too sure. Um, so the concentration risk uh, is, uh, you know, something that's been widely aired. But obviously, uh, the two billion story I was writing about earlier in the week seems to be largely driven by Apple. So at the moment, Apple and iPhone sales do seem to be moving again. Now, that's not to say that there hasn't been a wider retrenchment in tech and that won't play out in our tax figures. But at the moment, um, it doesn't seem to be figuring just yet. But there may be a lag factor. And then there's another factor coming on play, which is positive, uh, you know, for the exchequer here. And that's the reform on global tax is going to lift the minimum rate to 15% next year. So that means all the tax paid by companies here will go up. Um, so we're expected to probably do better on the back of that. And if you remember the negative uh, side of tax reforms from an Irish perspective was the reallocation of taxing rights in favour of uh, bigger countries. That is mired in political differences. It doesn't look like it's going to get through the US political system at the moment. So that's been pushed down the line. So at the moment, we're kind of getting the good uh, slice of the equation and not the bad. Do we know how much the increase to 15% will actually mean for us? And just to be clear, it's for companies, um, I think, with turnover of 750 million euro or more. So companies below that level continue to pay the 12.5% rate. No, it, it seems no one's done a, a calculation of this. And 
it seems that corporation tax receipts constantly baffle everyone. Uh, the Department of Finance keeps lowballing its projections for the year and keeps undershooting what the actual outturn is. So you can say two things might be going on there. Are they just basically not seeing under the bonnet of these companies? Are they getting surprised by Apple's sales numbers? Or are they trying to manage expectations? Um, you know, it must be difficult for finance ministers to keep the lid on spending when these receipts are rolling in in the background and different departments are clamoring for increased budgets. Yeah. Um, what's the Department of Finance saying about these latest uh, projections? Um, you know, this $2 billion extra figure, which would mean that receipts will exceed $26 billion for the year as a whole? Well, they're not saying anything. At the moment, they're sticking to their forecast for a 24 billion total for the year which would be a 2 billion increase on last year that's the figure they're sticking to and you know obviously it's early on in the year um so they haven't upgraded any of their forecasts and uh, at the moment you know it's 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 very difficult to get any information out of them just on you know where they think it's all going um and obviously there is what I've just mentioned you know that need to to maybe rein in expectations so they're not if you like jumping at the bit to to upgrade their projections at the moment so we're going to have a budget in within the next four months and an extra two billion euro you know in most years that'd be a handy sum of money for a minister for finance to have to spend to either fund tax cuts or maybe for social services spending or for uh, capital allocation. And what's the government, but because we're awash with money, um, it's not clear that Michael McGrath would actually welcome this extra two billion because there is a danger that we could overheat the economy, isn't there, with uh, inflation run, running as high as it is uh, and the cost of living uh, crisis being the way it is. So what are they going to do with this extra money, uh, Owen? Yeah, it's it's very problematic to have the notion of 65 billion in budget surpluses coming in over the next four years with so much um, problematic public services, a crisis in housing and, uh, you know, a retreat in living standards. So it's going to it's going to be a tough, uh, you know, budget politically uh, for the finance ministers because justifying keeping, a, you know, a lid on spending when there's that much receipts in the background is going to be a, a difficult political sell. And you can already see the budget is kind of subdividing into different cliques with the uh, kind of hawkish finance ministers wanting to keep a lid on spending. And uh, Taoiseach Leo Varadka kind of hinting that, um, you know, there's tax cuts on the horizon for the kind of cash-strapped middle-income earners. Now, we had a report today from the central bank um, and that warned the government pretty um, sternly that it needed to stay inside its 5% spending rule. Now, the government adopted in 2021 a 5% spending rule, which limits the increase, the net increase in government spending to 5% each year. Now, that might sound arbitrary for listeners, but it's a calculation that they say is in keeping with the long-run growth, uh, sustainable rate of growth for the Irish economy. So they said if the government exceeds that, um, even by a percent, it's going to basically push inflation higher. Now, we've already seen that inflation is is still very elevated. And the central bank elsewhere in its report uh, said it's not going to come down as fast as we might have expected. And that's in keeping with the ECB's projections last week. So, um, you know, it, it, it's a very difficult uh, and tricky matrix for the government to forge through. I mean, we're running at full employment. 
uh, unemployment is at a record low of 3.8%. So pushing loads more demand in the economy, which is what a big spend would do, uh, has the potential to tick up wages and prices and ultimately erode competitiveness. And when competitiveness erodes over a period, we then have growth stalling. So, you know, it, it, it's a very difficult economic equation to navigate uh, economically and politically. So what are they going to do with the surplus cash on? Well, the plan at the moment, and this probably should have been, uh, we should have been doing this, you know, a number of years ago, is to establish a new savings vehicle, um, something along the lines of a sovereign wealth fund that Norway might have put some of the excess receipts, uh, some of the windfall receipts that are now calculated or estimated to be around 12 billion, which is half the total uh, that we're getting from corporation tax, put them into a sovereign wealth fund and build them up. Now, IFAC thinks that if we could build them up and we could do this relatively quickly, we could then be investing in various uh, different assets and new technologies and making returns on it. We could then use those returns to invest in the economy without, if you like, um, losing the principal. So in many ways, we have a kind of wealth buffer and a steady stream of income from that to invest in problem areas like housing and health. And presumably you could pay our pensions bill. We're told there's a pensions time bomb coming down the track. Yeah, it's interesting that because the announcement around a new savings vehicle came um, only months after the government decided not to increase the pension age. Uh, Department of Finance forecast suggests that the stand standstill costs of having an older population is going to cost us eight to nine billion in about ten years, and that's primarily to do with the pensions and the, the bigger payout we're going to have to uh, divvy up for pensions. Just to be clear, on is that an extra eight to nine billion? That's an extra that eight to nine billion doing nothing else a year, and that's arriving at the end of this decade, and that's doing nothing else other than just paying. Uh, for the existing provision of services that we have. So that's a, a, a large chunk of change, and it's largely predicated on the government uh, making the you know politically controversial decision not, not to raise the retirement age. So on the other side of the ledger, then we've got this big flow of corporation tax receipts. So obviously people in the Department of Finance are thinking, well, you know, we could pay for these this extra pensions bill with some of these uh, corporation tax receipts, provided they're put in a suitable vehicle, provided they're invest, invested wisely. So that seems yeah. to be the plan that's been kind of formed uh, or framed in the Department of Finance at the moment. And the other element to this whole debate as well is the general election that we're likely to have in the sort of next 18 months or so. And Sinn Féin obviously calling for a loosening of the purse strings for various items, including uh, big spending on housing and Sinn Féin was very much opposed at the last election on increasing the pension age. So a lot of pressure on the government, not doing too well, particularly Fine Gael, not doing too well in the polls as illustrated by the Irish Times polls from last week. So a lot of pressure on the government on the one hand to spend, to open the purse strings and to relieve the pressures on people, but on the other hand to be prudent with the public finances so as not to tip us uh, into overheating the economy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's undoubtedly a massive political pressure to have, you know, such huge surpluses sitting in the background and then to have such a problematic uh, encounter with housing and other uh, public services. It's obviously going to play play a role and you can see the cabinet is making different soundings uh, around what they're going to do in the budget. So there's obviously a debate uh, and an argument at the heart of government about this. 
Uh, at the National Economic Dialogue last week, I did notice uh, a lot of the NGOs talking about the need to be prudent and strategic with spending. Uh, that's not the sort of sound that you might have heard a decade or two ago. Um, I think there was a big lesson in the financial crisis for Ireland. We, we spent a lot of money on health and it didn't really fix uh, much. And I think there's an acknowledgement now that a lot of the spending in the lead up to the crash was essentially inflationary, didn't go into the right areas and wasn't strategic. So I think people are a little bit more economically savvy now about, OK, we've got money, but just throwing money at problems, you know, isn't the best thing to do. And when you're at full employment, it can be quite self-destructive. We'll leave it there. Umber Kennedy of the Irish Times, thank you for joining us. OK, thanks. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Brendan Burgess and Owen Burke-Kennedy for joining me on the show. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY, for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.